My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Glad you're with us today. It's great to see some faces, uh, familiar faces, but we haven't maybe seen in a long time because of the pandemic. And it's also great to see some new faces in the room. And we're glad you're with us and glad for those of you who are joining us online as well today. Um, Just a quick announcement. Uh, This is a great time jumping in with us because we're going to be starting a new sermon series next week looking at the book of Jonah uh, over the coming weeks. Uh, Kind of the prodigal prophet, uh, the worst missionary in the history of the world. Uh, but also effective because God is sovereign. Uh, So uh, we'll be jumping into that next week. But it's Easter, right? This is Easter 2021. This is what it is. Uh, I don't know if you were here last year. Actually, I know you weren't uh, because there were like 10 of us in the room for Easter 2020. Uh, I like this a little better. Uh, This is a a lot more fun. Uh, So I'm grateful for this opportunity for us just to gather together and and celebrate uh, the Lord's resurrection and the glorious hope that we have in Him. I mean, this past year really has been uh, such a, a strange and difficult year for, for all of us in, in, in a variety of ways. Uh, obviously, it, it feels like we've been living in some sort of like dystopian novel walking through these pandemic days. I mean, I never thought I would preach to a room full of people with things over half of their faces, uh, and, and yet here we are, right? It's, it's strange. We've, we've all felt at various points the pain uh, of separation and isolation, of not being able to see loved ones that we're used to seeing, and maybe some of our gatherings for holidays throughout this past year have looked very different than uh, they previously did before. Um, so many people have felt the pain uh, of, uh, of great and deep loss, right? Over 550,000 people in the United States and 2.8 million people worldwide have, have died as a result of this pandemic. And that's not to also mention just the other losses that we've suffered through this year. Like, there's still cancer. Um, some of, we still lose loved ones as they age and, and, and their bodies fail. Uh, we've, we've, many of us have walked through a variety of losses and, and grief through this past year. And, and yet here we are um, at Easter Sunday. And in this past year, though, it's felt like heavy and dark days. And now it kind of seems like there's a light at the end of the tunnel in, in some way or another that's coming uh, for the pandemic anyway. Uh, we're thankful for that. But we should remember that even in the midst of the deepest darkness of this past year, there is no darkness that can cover over the glorious light of the resurrection. There's no darkness that can cover that. In fact, it's really in the face of deep darkness that the light of the gospel shines all the brighter for us to see and reminds us that the resurrection always means certain hope even in the midst of the most uncertain of times. The resurrection reminds us that God is always at work, even when we cannot perceive him to be working. He is always working all things together for the good of those who love him. It reminds us that that death is a broken power. It is a broken power. And it reminds us that as Christians, we belong to the conquering champion, Jesus Christ. And nothing can change that. Nothing can separate us from him. No matter how dark or bright the days ahead may be for us, uh, that is a certain hope that we can and we must cling to. And to encourage us in that hope on this Resurrection Sunday, I want us to, to look at the first sermon in the history of the church, uh, the Christian church, given by Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the day of Pentecost, of course, is, is the day when the risen Christ gave out the Holy Spirit 
the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. And in a very real sense, uh, sometimes in the evangelical world, we don't really recognize, especially in a Reformed, uh, Baptistic, uh, evangelical world, we don't really recognize the day of Pentecost like we should, but the day of Pentecost is significant, right? That's like the birthday of the church. That's when the Christian church started. It's a significant day, the first day of the church. And on that day, Peter preached the very first sermon, the first sermon in the history of the church. So that's, that's a pretty important sermon. And when we planted Redeemer uh, in 2012, and we prepared for our, our kind of first public worship gathering, and I'm preparing to preach the first sermon in the history of just this little church, uh, you know, I felt the weight of the significance of that. Like, that's a pretty important sermon. The first sermon of a new church needs to be pretty important. It needs to really focus on the heart of who are we, who are we going to be as, as God's people? What are we called to? What kind of church is this supposed to be? Uh, it, it, you want to zero in on all those sorts of things. When you, when you go to the initial meeting of any sort of new organization, you expect to talk about the main thing that organization is all about. But in Acts chapter 2, we don't just have the initial meeting of another organization, nor do we have the, the, the beginning of just a new local church, but rather we have the first sermon preached in the capital C, Christian Church Universal. And what we find is that the resurrection is at the very heart of that message, at the very heart. It's, it's the very heart of Christianity uh, and what it means to be a Christian. And therefore, it's the, at the very heart of the hope that we so desperately need and in Christ we can confidently claim and cling to. That's what we're going to see in three short verses here in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you have them with you, and let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Acts 2, 22 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are, are just so grateful for your love for us, for your grace to send your Son by your definite plan before the foundation of the world. You set in motion the plan to rescue us by sending your son to live and to die and to be raised for us. Would you help us to see the hope that that means for us? The hope that that means no matter what times we find ourselves living in, no matter how good or bad the days seem to be, no matter how present or active we perceive you to be, help us to know that you are very much at work that because of the resurrection, we can know that you have a plan, that you are, are working, that you have delivered, you have overcome death and sin and our enemy, Satan, by the finished work of your son. And help us to rest in that hope, to cling to it, to live, it, live in it to such a degree that we can laugh in the face of death, knowing that it has no power 
over us anymore in Christ. Would you grip us by the hope of the resurrection today that we would be a joyful, hopeful people in the midst of a a lonely and dark world so that we might share that hope with others and they might come to know and rejoice in you, Jesus, as we do today. We pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. The resurrection means certain hope, even in the midst of of uncertain times. And I want to point out three things that these three short verses kind of assure us of in that resurrection hope, how they assure us of that resurrection hope. We see here a hidden plan, a broken power, and a conquering champion. Uh, we see here first a, a hidden plan. Right? Anytime that there's any sort of tragedy in the world, you will find people asking uh, a couple different sets of questions right? Uh, in the face of that tragedy. They'll be, they'll be wrestling. It's very common, right? You'll hear one set of questions that goes like this. How could God allow this to happen? Right? Where was he? Why didn't he step in and do something to prevent this? Where is God? Why would he allow this to happen? That's one set of questions you hear. The other set goes a little bit more like this. Why did God do this? How could God do this to me? Those two sets of questions, if you really think about them and you analyze them, they, they both carry with them differing kind of underlying presumptions about how God relates to the world. The person who's asking, where was God when this happened? How could God allow this to happen? Why didn't he step in? Where was he? Uh, that person assumes that God is kind of somewhere out there, separate from the world, right? Sometimes he steps in and intervenes, and other times he just you know, he steps away, falls asleep at the wheel. He's more or less engaged in what's happening, depending on the moment, more or less aware of what's happening. That's kind of the underlying presumption of those questions. And when tragedy happens, obviously, you know, God must have been asleep at the wheel, or he would have done something about it. And he should have been more aware, he should have been more involved. But the person who says, why did God do this? How could God do this to me? Assumes God is like the puppet master, right? And we, all the world, all the people of this world, we are just puppets at the end of the strings that he is controlling. And, and it's all him. He's, he's the one doing everything. He's the one doing everything. He's pulling the strings, directing us in everything. But I want you to look again with me at verse 23 and see what Peter tells us here, what the Lord tells us here through his word. It says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Right, the first part of that, Jesus was, was delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That sounds like God's the puppet master. Right? He's the puppet master. We're just at the end of the strings. He did this. It's him. Yet, yet people tend, who tend to hold that view, right, they, they see God as, as totally in control, and they tend to shift all the responsibility is on God, and none of the responsibility is ours. I mean, he's the puppet master. It's all him. He's responsible. We're not responsible. We're just, you know, puppets. But notice the amazing paradox here in this one verse. Jesus was delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, yet 
this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was according to God's plan, and yet the people who carried out the crucifixion of Jesus were absolutely responsible for his death. Absolutely responsible. We tend to think that it can only be one way or the other. Either it's, it's God's plan and God's doing, or it's our responsibility. It can't be both. It's either 100% God or 100% us. Or maybe, you know, it's 80-20 or something like that. But, but the Bible holds these seemingly conflicting truths together in perfect harmony. God is sovereign over everything. Nothing happens apart from his will. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, right? He's absolutely sovereign over everything that happens. And, and yet, human beings are responsible for their actions. The Bible holds those both together as true and, and doesn't see the, the need to explain to us exactly how they work together both as, as absolutely true. It just tells us they do. They're both true. And it leaves the mystery it leaves the tension. It doesn't resolve. We want to assume it's, it's either 100% God, 100% us, but the Bible tells us that the death of Jesus was absolutely part of God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And yet it also tells us that the people who carried out Jesus' death on the cross and the people who sinned, you and me, who drove him to that cross, who necessitated the cross, are absolutely responsible. And what that means the hopeful part of what that means is that God is involved in everything. He's involved in everything. That's what's encouraging. That's what's hopeful. God is involved and at work in absolutely everything that we encounter, everything that we experience, everything that's happening in your life right now. God is absolutely at work and involved in the minute details of that. I said this on Good Friday, and so if you're here then, and this is repetition for you, I apologize. But, but the cross and the empty tomb were not just God reacting. Like, the resurrection, the cross, this was not like God just simply taking lemons and making lemonade. That's not what was happening. It wasn't like God was caught off guard. Like, I can't believe that they would kill my only son. I can't believe that they would do that to him. Why would they not receive him? I sent him to them. That, that's not what was happening. It was all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that he was sent to live the sinless life, die the sacrificial death that we deserve on the cross for our sins, and to be raised victorious over Satan, sin, and death. It was all his plan. And that should give us much hope that these days that we're living through are likewise not catching God off guard. Where did that pandemic come from? Where did that cancer diagnosis come from? God is not caught off guard. He is absolutely involved and at work and working all things, even the, the deepest, darkest things together for good for those who love him. He's absolutely in control just because we can't see him at work all the time doesn't mean that he's not working all the time. It's not up to our perception to determine whether or not God's at work. Uh, he determines that. And he is always at work. 
He's absolutely in control, yet we're absolutely responsible for our actions. We are not mere puppets at the end of a string. It's a mystery how it works together, a mystery the Bible is content not to resolve. But the the comforting piece is that God is absolutely at work even now. On that first Holy Saturday, that day of, of just quiet, where Jesus' dead body lay in the tomb. And it seemed that that God is absolutely silent and disengaged, asleep at the wheel, not doing anything. That's what Holy Saturday felt like, that first Holy Saturday. I can only imagine from the Father's perspective, our Heavenly Father, what, what He was thinking what he was preparing, what he was doing, what he knew he was preparing to do from before the foundations of the world and knowing that that moment was coming that next morning. I imagine, in my mind, this is not scripture, this is just me thinking and contemplating on that, 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 that he's like a parent on Christmas Eve, right? Who, who can't wait for the morning to come so the kids can see what will be there for them. Only infinitely greater only infinitely greater. The Father, the Heavenly Father on that Saturday, I imagine was thinking, I can't wait to see how they will respond to what I have for them in the morning. I can't wait. Can you imagine? You know, we question when tragedy comes, but can you imagine the people who were there at the cross, what they were thinking on that Good Friday, on that Holy Saturday? what was going through their mind, the questions that they were wrestling with. They had to be thinking, how can anything good come out of this? God must either be asleep at the wheel or he must be absolutely evil to allow this to happen. Those had to be the thoughts that were going through their minds. Yet we know, we know on this side of the empty tomb that God was in their midst. He was very much at work. There was a hidden plan and it was all for their good. The cross and empty tomb remind us, they tell us that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Even in the days that we're living in, God is working all things together for good. He's not caught off guard, friends. He is not absent. He's not asleep at the wheel. And and the cross tells us that he most certainly is not evil. He gave himself over to evil in our place, over to suffering, to rescue us from sin and death that we deserve because of our sins. He is very much at work. He always has a plan. You can't always see it, but he's there. He's at work. He's with you. He's for you, Christian. We also see in this text a a broken power. Look again, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That, that language, that it was not possible for him to be held by it. That word held is referring to death's grip. It's referring to death's strength, death's power. And, and Jesus broke that power. He broke death's power. And, 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 and we see here, you think about it, he broke it in, in two ways, in two senses. First, he broke the hold of death in the sense that he paid the penalty of sin in full. Right? He paid the debt in full, so it has no more hold on it. Objectively, it cannot hold him anymore. He's paid it in full. Death is the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. That's the even more significant death. Cosmic suffering, eternal separation from God. Eternal death, spiritual death. But Jesus came and he paid that penalty in 
full. He lived a sinless life that fulfilled God's law perfectly in every way that we fail to, com- com- uh, to obey his law. He did that in our place and then he went to the cross to die the death that we deserve for our sins. And by his sacrificial death, Jesus paid that penalty in full. Well, if you and I were to leave here today, go commit a crime, and then we go to court and we're sentenced for that crime to serve a year in prison, there's a reality that for 365 days, prison has a hold on you. It holds you. It contains you. It has power over you. But on day 366, assuming it's not a leap year, um, it could hold you no longer. It could hold you no longer because you would have fully satisfied the penalty. You would be free. You would be free. And that's what happened at the cross of Christ. Jesus' death paid the penalty of sin in full. And so death could no longer have a hold of him. He, he, he broke its power. He, he, he's set free. It couldn't keep its hold on him. But Jesus' death goes further than that. It doesn't just like mean that he's free from death. For the Bible tells us that everyone who puts their hope and trust in Christ, right? everyone who turns from their sin and, and trusts that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did die their death, your death, in, in your place for your sins, everyone who puts their hope in that, for them also the power of death has been broken in Jesus' death, in Jesus' death and resurrection. For you as well, Christian, death can no longer hold you. Eternal death, spiritual death has been defeated. It can have no hold on you. It cannot keep you. We see this, Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Similarly, we read in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, right? His death is, is my death for sin. I put my hope in Jesus and his death becomes my death. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ pays the penalty of sin in full for not just Jesus, right? Because he has no sin, but for everyone who puts their hope in him, that's the point. He put himself in your place. He exchanged his perfection for all of your sin and suffered and died as your sin so that all who would trust in him, his death would be your death and you would be set free objectively from the penalty of death. It has no power. It's a broken power now because of the finished work of Christ. Because of Jesus, Christian, death cannot hold you. Yet there's still a reality that all of us die physically. But the resurrection means that if you are in Christ, you will never die spiritually. That's the real penalty for sin, right? And even though in this world we all still face physical death, for the Christian, there is no spiritual death, but rather our bodies are planted. They're planted 
with certain hope of resurrection. While our souls go to be with Jesus immediately at our physical death, and then one day they will be reunited with our resurrected glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. For the Christian, death is like planting a tulip bulb that will burst through the ground a beautiful tulip. It's like an acorn planted that will grow to be a mighty oak tree. The power of death is broken. It can no longer hold you forever. Which points to the second way that Jesus broke death's power. He also broke it subjectively. That is to say that he freed us from the fear of death. He has set you free from the fear of death. We live in a world that is plagued by the fear of death. A lot of people say, I'm not afraid of death. Like, look how I risk my life and do all these crazy things all the time. They're still plagued by the fear of death. It's underneath there, driving everything that we do, everything that we search for, everything. We might not acknowledge that it's the fear of death, but it is there, always in the background, in every culture, it's there. There's a reality that, that if there is nothing beyond this life, if this life is it, right? You live, you die, that's it. If that is absolutely true, and that's it, then what death means is that nothing you will do in this life matters at all. Nothing. Nothing matters. Because eventually, you will die, and you will cease to exist. doesn't matter. And maybe, yeah, sure, there's some people that you impacted, and they'll remember you for a while, but you know, guess what? Eventually, they're going to die too. And then no one will remember you. No one. And then eventually the sun burns out and everything ceases to exist. And it matters not at all. Not one bit. Nothing you ever did. And that underlying fear haunts us. It is what drives us in all of these sorts of different ways to try to build and accumulate wealth, to, to get as many people to like you and approve of you as possible and make you feel like you're significant. It's, it's where all of our grabs for power and control come from. All, they're all really driven by this underlying fear of death and our inability to do anything about it. Apart from Christ, you cannot escape that fear. But in Christ, you can be fully delivered and set free from the fear of death. It's like the great 17th century poet George Herbert once wrote, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Just a gardener. Apart from Christ, death is an executioner. If you're not in Jesus, death is an executioner. If you're a worldly person, a secular person, you die, and you just assume you're going to nothing, and that stirs up great fear, or if you're a religious person, just a merely religious person, and you realize at the end of your days, I haven't lived a good enough life. I didn't do enough. You haven't measured up morally. You know there's eternal death beyond physical death, and you haven't been good enough, and so that makes you desperately afraid. But if you put your hope and faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection for you, you believe his death was your death and his life is your life, Death used to be an executioner, but now, friends, it's just a gardener. It's just a gardener, which means the physical death will only plant you. Your body does not become a rotting corpse, but a germinating seed, a tulip bulb that becomes a tulip, an acorn that becomes a mighty oak tree, which means all death can do to you now in Christ 
is make you better. Lead to you being glorified and united with Christ in perfection. All it can do is make you better. A little over a year ago, uh, Lois Evans, the wife of uh, Tony Evans, a pastor some of you may be familiar with, uh, lost her battle with cancer and she, she passed away. And at her funeral there, and some of you may have seen this, but, but her son, uh, Pastor Jonathan L. Evans, uh, gave this powerful eulogy that captures this very, very well. He said that in his wrestling of, of praying for his mother's recovery and, and, you know, and God's answer to those prayers, that the Lord revealed to him that he didn't really understand the nature of Christ's victory. And he said this. He said the Lord revealed to him. This is what he said at the, at the, at the funeral. He said, the Lord said to him, just because I didn't answer your prayer your way doesn't mean I haven't already answered your prayer anyway. Because of the victory that was already given to your mom, there was always only two answers to your prayers. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of or well taken care of. Victory belongs to me. It's beautiful. And that's the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. That's for us. Jesus delivers you from the fear of death. It is a broken power. And how does Jesus accomplish that? How does he do that? He does so as a conquering champion. As you think again on this verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The image that, that comes to mind for me anyway is a battle, it is, a, is a wrestling match, right? And when I was a kid, I used to love to watch profess, professional wrestling, uh, you, know, you know, the Hulk Hogan uh, days, so I'm date myself a little bit. But, uh, but when I was a kid, I, I loved to watch that. And I, I kind of picture in this verse, sort of like a WrestleMania, Royal Rumble cage match, only it's like for real. Like that stuff's pretend and fake, but this is for real. This is for real. And death is in the middle of, of that ring. And he's just destroyed everyone. He's just leveled everyone. But here comes Jesus running into that ring. And death tries to get a hold of him. It tries to get a hold of him, but it cannot hold him down. It cannot. And Jesus just powers his way through death and crushes him, destroying his ability to hurt anyone else. Jesus is the conquering champion who defeats death on our behalf. The book of Hebrews kind of subtly points to this as well. You know, in Hebrews 12, we just walked through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, where it talks about Jesus, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. It describes Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith. And it uses that word founder a few times throughout the book. But, but that the word, the Greek word that's translated as founder is actually a word in the Greek that means champion. It means champion, and it's used elsewhere. Even more powerfully, we kind of get that picture in Hebrews chapter two, verse 10, and then skipping down to verse 14 and 15, where it says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, that is the champion of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Since therefore the children share in, in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through Fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
And David, and David fought Goliath. They fought as, as champions, right? They, they fought as champions for their armies, their respective armies. That means that they each went out there as a representative and a substitute for the entire army. And, and, and what that meant is that if David won, which he did, we know that, right? It was counted as a victory for the entire army of Israel. But if Goliath won, that meant that Israel would have been enslaved. So instead of the two armies completely going at war with one another, the two individuals fight. And their victory or defeat is kind of imputed. It's, it's given over. It's counted as the victory or defeat for the entire army. And Jesus, of course, is the true and better David. We know that. He's the true and better David, and he's the true and ultimate champion. He faced death, and he fought it in our place, and he defeated it once and for all for us as our conquering champion. The victory of Jesus means that when you face your own physical death, you don't have to be overwhelmed with these feelings of, I haven't lived a good enough life. Because friends, when that day comes, the reality is you haven't lived a good enough life. I haven't lived a good enough life. None of us live a good enough life. But when you face that day, you don't have to have those feelings in Christ. For those who are in Jesus, Jesus has already lived the perfect life and he's already faced death in your place and he's already defeated it for you. So all death can do to you now is make you better. It can only usher you into glory and wholeness with Jesus forever and ever. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that the power of death has been broken and that death is a defeated enemy. I love how the Apostle Paul just taunts death in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. We sang these words earlier and I hope that you sang them with a spirit of taunting death today because you have that freedom, Christian. But, but Paul is just, he's making fun of death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's just making fun of it, taunting it. Like, it's like a, a, a big-time bat flip after a walk-off home run right there. You got nothing on me, death. Nothing. If you're in Christ, you can and you should have that kind of confidence, that kind of hope. These are our strange days, and none of us ever know exactly what tomorrow holds. But in Christ, we know this. We know that God is at work, and he is in control. We know that, that he's not caught off guard, but that he's always working all things together for the good of those who love him. And we know this, that the power of death has been broken by Jesus, our conquering champion. It's been defeated. In him, we can have certain hope, even in the most uncertain of circumstances. Friends, Jesus would invite you today, if you don't know him, to... to, to to believe in him, to receive him, and, and, and to have that hope for yourself, to see that his death to sin is your death to sin, and that his resurrection is your newness of life, and your resurrection hope that death can only plant you. It can only make you better. Embrace him today. Receive him today. May that hope be at the very core, the very center of who you are, of who we are, and all that we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to be caught up in the, in the circumstances of our lives and to lose sight of you, to lose perspective that you are very much in control and at work in our lives. Jesus, help us to fix our eyes on you 
and all that you have won for us by your death and resurrection. Holy Spirit, enable us to truly rest in Christ's victory over sin and death, to truly live in that freedom that would allow us to to even make fun of death. Help us to truly live our lives in worship of Jesus, our ultimate and true champion for his glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.